It's the 6th of April, 2018. This is the Room Now we can review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week we're going to talk about what happens when the temporal artery biopsy lets you down, who not to sit next to on the plane, and who are those people with a mask? Maybe you should talk to them. And lastly, is it good news when there's no change in the cost of care in rheumatoid arthritis? The top of the news is a nice study by the Swiss they looked at 244 patients with rheumatoid arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis and compared them to healthy controls. They showed that our patients who have RA and AXPA have a higher risk of pregnancy uh, adverse outcomes, including gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, infection, small birth weight, and preterm delivery. Turns out it's all about disease activity. It is disease activity that drives risk, especially for preterm delivery. Uh, this activity gives you a fourfold higher risk of preterm delivery in rheumatoid arthritis and a 14-fold higher risk of preterm delivery in the AXPOP group. So again, focusing on, on disease activity is the most important thing when managing patients who are pregnant. Uh, an interesting study comes from Harvard and, and their use of the EMR in monitoring their RA patients. Jeff Sparks and, and his colleagues looked at about 170 RA patients and focused on 116, the majority, who had either BMI evidence of obesity or being overweight and looked at outcomes according to what happened to their weight. Turns out there was 31 patients who lost more than five kilograms of weight. And this, this group of, of, the, of those who lost weight had a threefold higher odds of actually achieving significant disease improvement as defined as a C die of equal to or greater than five point change for the better. So again, it's very important data. It, it should, should be fuel for you to counsel your patients about the benefits of losing weight, especially if you have an inflammatory disease like rheumatoid arthritis. A study from the Scandinavian Journal of Rheumatology looked at what happens to the total cost of care, what happens to care overall in two different time frames separated by 10 years. They looked at these two cohorts that either began in 1996 or 2006 and showed a number of interesting observations. What decreased? Disease activity, sick leave, and hospitalizations when you compared 96 to 2006. What increased was DMARD use and the cost of drugs. What didn't change was the total cost of care, which was about 12 to 13,000 euros in both time frames and not significantly different between the groups. So while there's not much change in the cost of care, there's a significant shift with more aggressive therapies, more expensive therapies being used and better disease control. But what, while that may cost a lot more money, what, uh, what the savings are in hospitalizations and surgeries. So that's sort of good news, I believe, for rheumatoid arthritis overall. A study of enthesitis JIA looked at what happens to those patients over time. Turns out at the onset of their disease, a cohort of 114 enthesitis JIA patients, that almost none of them had axial disease or sacroiliitis at the outset. But when they were followed for five years, they did change, and a subset of them did change to develop um, those two manifestations. Turns out that after a mean of 2.6 years, 63% developed axial disease and 47% developed imaging evidence of sacroiliitis. Those more likely to do so are those who had a history of spa with sacroiliitis in the family and those who had active disease, both imparting a threefold higher risk of developing either axial 
manifestations or sacred ileitis in those with enthesitis related JIA. So what do you do when you have a negative temporal artery biopsy? It is the gold standard when diagnosing giant cell arteritis. It has a diagnostic yield of 85 to 92% is what I remember. Um, and there's a nice study from uh, clinical rheumatology. They looked at 154 patients who were um, included by having a negative temporal artery biopsy for suspected GCA. Turns out that 20% of these patients ultimately were diagnosed with GCA. Um, those that weren't either had neurologic disease, self-limited disease, or no diagnosis. But again, 20% went on to GCA. You were more likely to make the GCA diagnosis with a negative temporal artery biopsy if you met ACR criteria for GCA. That gave you a 13-fold higher odds of actually achieving a diagnosis. Or if you had a prior clinical diagnosis of PMR, a three-fold higher risk, or evidence of thrombocytosis and elevated platelet count, a 1.3-fold higher risk or 30% higher risk. So again, all is not lost when the temporal artery biopsy is negative. Look at the ACR criteria uh, and the platelet count. Uh, an interesting study comes from a sequential study of patients being seen in a GI IBD clinic. So these are patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And they were compared, about 200 of them, who were compared to about 100 who were followed in the urology clinic with no diagnosis of either IBD or low back pain or any kind of spondylitis. They did CT scans on all these patients, and they found that on the controls, the GU patients, 5.6% actually had evidence of sacroiliitis on CT scans. But in the IBD patients, it was threefold higher, 15 to 16.9%, the higher being the UC patients. Again, these numbers are sort of in, in line with what you expect in, a, in an IBD population, a small subset, close to 20%, that may actually develop axial disease of some sort, but that you can find it by sacroiliitis. They didn't look at B27 positivity. They didn't look at symptomatology here. It's just how many developed sacroiliitis or had sacroiliitis when you look at the CT scan. I think that's somewhat instructive. There's a, another study that looked at um, um, patients who have IBD and shows that 3 million patients we know the United States have IBD, what is their risk of actually developing a myocardial infarction? Well, this is a very large cohort of 22 million IBD patients, and it shows that they have a twofold higher odds of developing a myocardial infarction when followed over time, suggesting it's inflammation. It doesn't have to be rheumatoid. It can be any kind of inflammatory disease that actually is at a higher risk of developing um, cardiac complications, especially myocardial infarction. Myocardial infarction was also looked at in claims database study looking at is cardiovascular events uh, 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 more frequent with one drug or another. And these are patients starting either tocilizumab, about 6,000 patients, or abatacept. These are claims data from Medicare elderly people, but then younger people with pharmametrics and IMS and market scan commercial databases. And again, large numbers, 6,200 versus uh, 14,000 um, plus patients. And in the end, they found no higher risk of cardiovascular uh, events with either drug. Comparing tocilizumab to abatacept, the hazard ratio is 0.82 and an overlap with uh, one, suggesting no difference between the two. This is important because many people are concerned about tocilizumab and maybe it might have a higher risk because of its association with hyperlipidemia in 20% of patients. But turns out that that's not clinically important. We do know those patients also significantly drop their CRP levels. We also know that there's another study called Intract that was we reported on last year, and that was a head-to-head -head 
three-year trial of tocilizumab versus etanercept, looking specifically at lipid levels and cardiovascular outcomes. And while lipid levels did go up in the tocilizumab group, there was no difference in cardiovascular events between uh, etanercept and tocilizumab. We do know from many studies that chronic TNF therapy does lower cardiovascular event rates. So again, I think this data with, from the claims data on tocilizumab versus abatacept is encouraging. There's an interesting study looking at NXP2 antibodies. I, I don't know if you're aware of NXP2 antibodies, but they are found in a subset of patients with dermatomyositis who may or may not have calcinosis and who may be at higher risk of developing cancer. Um, it's sort of like the TIF1 antibody that's associated with myositis and cancer, but this is NXP2. But an interesting study comes from um, uh, uh, looking at 56 patients who have this, 18 of whom uh, did have calcinosis, 38 of whom did not have calcinosis. And the interesting part of the study is they showed that NXP2 positivity, they all had positivity, but titers actually correlated with disease activity for their myositis, but only in those patients with, without calcinosis, not with calcinosis. So I think it suggests that NXP2 can be used to define an, a different phenotype of dermatomyositis patients who, um, without calcinosis, the NXP2 antibodies may correlate, correlate well with these, these activity. It'd be nice to see this repeated in another study. Um, a study comes from the JIA literature looking at IL-6 inhibition in patients with Stills disease or systemic onset juvenile idiopathic arthritis or systemic JIA. This is a study of the, from the German aid registry, the auto-inflammatory disease network or registry, uh, where since 2009, they've enrolled over 200 patients with systemic JIA. They found a subset of these patients who were treated with uh, uh, tocilizumab and looked at their outcomes. What they found was that in 12 months, 35% had no disease activity and had done very well. Sort of a low number, but it's a stringent definition of no disease activity. By 12 months, it actually had increased to as high as 70% had significant improvement with IL-6 inhibition. So I think that this data is somewhat instructive. Um, the question is who should really get IL-6 inhibition? When he did a subset analysis, they found the highest response rates in those who had polycyclic JIA, 81% um, in fact responded. 59% responded if they had monocyclic JIA and only 29% responded if they had polyarticular JIA. I came up with those definitions back in the 80s in my first report on Stills disease, where I characterized the disease as being polycyclic, meaning many spikes of systemic disease, often with disease-free intervals, or monocyclic, an initial spike and in activity of inflammatory systemic disease, serositis, high CRPs and ferritins, and all that kind of stuff, high fevers, etc. But there's a subset of patients who have chronic articular disease, and they may not respond as well. That might be a, a good indication for guiding your therapy when trying to choose IL-6 inhibition versus IL-1 inhibition in someone who has new uh, systemic JIA. There's a nice report about ILD um, and how to treat those patients with ILD when they have the antisynthetase syndrome. These are, these are inflammatory myositis patients who have an interstitial lung disease. And this is an, uh, a two-center study from the University of Pittsburgh, Chet Otis's group, and Paul Della Ripa at the Harvard um, affiliates that looked at their cohort 
of patients, I believe it was 56 patients, uh, who were treated with rituximab. And what they found was uh, significant improvements in a number of different variables when they followed them over time. So looking at a 12-month outcome, comparing pre-rituximab to post-rituximab, they showed significant improvement in CT scores, that's the CT scan scores, forced vital capacity, total lung capacity, and steroid use. Uh, so I think this is sort of good data. Again, it's uncontrolled data. It's, it's, it, there's a limitation to that, but it's hard to find good data on these rare syndromes and this subset of a rare syndrome. This should be good fuel for another study going forward. Another important report came out this week in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease where a, uh, the SHARE group, this is a group of European investigators developing guidelines and recommendations surrounding the treatment of pediatric rheumatology patients, they came out with guidelines uh, and recommendations on uveitis in JIA. Their bottom line is screen everybody and treat them early. Um, uh, uh, the risk factors for developing uveitis in JIA included, include early onset of arthritis, the oligoarticular subset of JIA, and the presence of an anti-nuclear antibody. In their report, they give you recommendations about screening, monitoring, diagnosis, and treatment. They show you all the options. You look at treatment if you want to find out more about this. But they, they basically say that patients should be screened early and locally and as soon as possible as the diagnosis of JIA is made. They are noncommittal about the frequency of screening, uh, suggesting that that should be dictated by the disease activity of their arthritis. They are clear in st stating that if you stop immunosuppressant or anti-inflammatory therapy, you should promptly screen them and screen them every three months for at least a year because that's the period in which they're more likely to have flares or the onset of uveitis in JIA. I'll end with a quote, a famous quote, coming from one of my blogs from this week. And this is a blog about the least favored patients and how you should approach patients who you are your least favored or who are hard to manage and who you have a problem with relating to. Um, the quote is, providing medical care is more about a commitment to the patient than a commitment to science. When we see these patients, we often know exactly what to do. We're the know-it-alls. We, you know, there should be no discussion, but that's not what works in such patients. Empathy, understanding, and listening are often required. Uh, and again, hard to do, especially when you think you know all the answers. But again, it's, I think it's a, an instructive piece um, and maybe worth a read. That's it for this week at roomnow.com. Go to the, the website to find the links to these reports. Uh, be sure to tell your friends to listen in on, on, on their next um, podcast that they can get on their iPhone or their Android phone, either on iTunes or on Stitcher. We'll see you next week at roomnow.com.